Thank you very much, Paul. And uh, hello, everyone. Good to uh, good to see you all uh, in your little boxes. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. And um, just to say thank you so much uh, for praying for us as a church. North Church certainly feels uh, the prayers of the Lord's people. And we're very, very grateful uh, for uh, all that you do for us uh, in that way in particular. Um, like, like Paul said, uh, he's asked me to just give you a bit of an update as to uh, how things are going and, and kind of what's going on at North Church. So um, I'll give you a brief uh, overview over the last, uh, of the last eight months, well, I guess of, of 2020 so far. Um, 2020 was an exciting uh, start to the year for us, actually, because uh, we uh, as a church constituted in uh, in January. So we we sort of had a, uh, put in place a formal membership. So we had eight founding members. Um, North Church kind of started in its kind of embryonic form. Uh, and I guess we are still pretty embryonic at the minute. But we started uh, meeting together uh, every Sunday back in uh, 2018. Um, and uh, and so we're, we're very grateful to God to be able to be at a point where we now have a, a kind of a membership uh, and a constitution and all that kind of stuff, which might sound dull to some people, but I cannot tell you actually how thrilling it was uh, to be able to to get down together and be be clear on uh, how we're going to be led as a church and what we believe as a church and what it means to be a member of the church and all those wonderful things that are so precious to us. So that was very exciting. Obviously, uh, lockdown came and it's it's uh, uh, been an interesting journey for, for us, as I'm sure it has been for you and, uh, well, everyone, um, especially uh, churches. And um, uh, I guess uh, not unlike many churches, uh, we found that doing things online uh, spread our reach out that little bit more. And so we've got some uh, some wonderful kind of contact from people that weren't previously connected with the church. And um, uh, so that's been exciting. We've been able to have some some good conversations with people about the gospel as a result of chucking our stuff online. So that's been uh, that's been great and a great encouragement. Uh, but obviously, we've, we've been lamenting the fact that we've uh, been unable to, to meet together uh, as God's people. But uh, I am uh, grateful to be able to say that we, we started meeting uh, in the flesh last week. Uh, last Sunday was our first one, not in the usual uh, community center that we meet in, because that's uh, that's not opening their doors just yet. Uh, but we've been able to meet at a local community center and it's been a wonderful provision. So today was our, our second Sunday meeting together there. Uh, we've had new people who have never been to uh, our church or any church actually uh, before come uh, last week and this week. So we were we were very excited um, by what the Lord's been doing. Um, we'd appreciate your ongoing prayers for the unbelievers who are regularly among us to come to faith uh, and that the believers among us would continue to grow uh, in their faith as we continue to uh, gather as the people of God. Um, so I guess that's a that's a little update for you. Um, and it is the faith that we're talking about this evening from Genesis chapter 22. Before we look at this chapter, uh, let me pray for us as we come to it. Lord God, we are so thankful for your word. Lord Jesus, where else would we go? Where else would we turn? You alone have the words of eternal life. We thank you that we have these words in our hands. We can read them. We can hear them. And Lord, we pray, as was so helpfully uh, read to us earlier, that we would be good soil this evening. We pray that your word would be faithfully preached and that it would be received by faith. 
so that we would be those who bear much fruit for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to spend our time thinking about the passage that was read to us, Genesis 22. Abraham commanded to sacrifice his own son, which has to be one of the most intense stories in the whole Bible. Uh, I'll never forget the day that I became a dad. And uh, the thing that caught me off guard in a, in a good way uh, was the immediate and kind of intensely uh, protective love that overwhelmed me as soon as I laid eyes on that kind of scrunched up alien-like little miniature human being. Uh, I'd never felt anything like it, and it kind of caught me off guard. That, that, that sense of, you know, absolutely nothing would stop me from doing what I needed to do to protect this little bundle. Right. Step in front of a bus or in in front of a bullet or in front of a bull or anything else dangerous that begins with a B. It wouldn't matter. I would without a hesitation, I would do it for the sake of protecting that little child. And that's not because I'm a particularly good dad. I think it's just because I'm a parent and this is it's not unique to me. It's it's our kind of parental instinct. It's part of being a parent. And I think we can assume that. That was no different for Abraham. Uh, I mean, we're told in verse 2, aren't we, that Isaac is the son that he loves. Abraham was a a human being like us with parental instincts like us, which makes this gut-wrenching command to sacrifice his own son so intense and kind of harrowing. It's every parent's worst nightmare. But there was even more than his son at stake here. Because remember who this son is. This is Isaac. This is the son that God had promised to Abraham in his old age. Back in Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. That this is the son through whom the nation of Israel would come. This is the son of promise. This is the son that God had promised to Abraham, who who would uh, become the, the grandfather of the great nation of Israel. And through that nation, the world would be blessed because the savior of the world, the Lord Jesus, would come through Israel and save people like you and me. Now, that ramps the intensity up even more, doesn't it? Because if there's no Isaac then goodbye to the promises of God. If Isaac's dead, then he can't have grandchildren, and that covenant that God made flies out the window. If there's no Isaac, there's no Israel. And if there's no Israel, there's no Messiah. There's no Christ. On the surface, if Abraham obeys God, then all the promises of God and the blessing of salvation and and justification to the nations comes to nothing. And that's why in the New Testament, this story is held out as a great example of faith. Right. We we read that in Hebrews earlier. James chapter two also points towards this story and says, look, that that's what faith looks like. Abraham is a brilliant example of faith. So we're going to use this story to have a think about faith under three headings. Okay. first of all, we're going to think about what faith 
is. Then we're going to see what faith does. And then finally, we will see who faith trusts. What faith is, what faith does, and who faith trusts. And all the while, we want to be asking ourselves, is this what my faith looks like? That's important. We're told, aren't we, in Ephesians 2, that we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the the instrument, if you like, that we use to take hold of all that Christ has done for us. True faith is, is the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between being a child of God or an enemy of God. So the stakes were high for Abraham here, but they are high for us as well. So let's have a think about faith, starting with what faith is. Just read with me uh, Genesis chapter 22. It will help you to keep Genesis 22 open as we go through. Read verses 1 and 2 again with me. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So we're told very clearly in verse one that Abraham is being tested here. Right now, let's think carefully about that. This is not that God was kind of somehow in the dark. He didn't know something about Abraham. And so he needed to do a bit of an experiment to to find something out. No, that, that can't be the case for the God who knows all things. The, the tests and trials uh, that God leads his people through are not for his benefit, but they're for ours. Right. To, to, to bring out good fruit and to kind of prove and strengthen the genuineness of our faith. I don't know, perhaps lockdown has been such a test for you. That's what God is doing to Abraham. He is bringing forth good fruit and proving the genuineness of his faith. And you can see how serious this test is for Abraham, right? I mean, there's there's the obvious problem of killing his beloved son. Like I said, every parent's worst nightmare. But more than that, there seems to be a massive clash or a kind of contradiction here in what God has said to Abraham. Because he was promised that through Isaac will come a great nation. You know, you're going to have this son and he'll have a son and they will become this great nation. But now, God, I'm supposed to kill him? That, that doesn't square up. How can Isaac be the patriarch, one of the patriarchs of this great nation, if he's dead. And so you might expect, I, I can certainly see myself doing this, you might expect Abraham to go, well, God, God, hang on a second. Uh, there must be some kind of mistake here. You, you've, you've clearly just not thought this through. Let me try and correct you, God. See, if, if I sacrifice Isaac 
your promise goes out the window. So, you know, we need, we need another plan here. But amazingly, that's not what Abraham does. What does he do? He takes God at his word. He takes God at his word. He doesn't disbelieve the promise, nor does he disobey the command. You get a hint of this in verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. He says, well, we'll be back. It seems that he was expecting, and whether he knew exactly how, he was expecting that Isaac would come back alive. He, he had to, if God's promise was true. If God's promise was true, Isaac had to come back alive. And this is how Hebrews 11 put it. Let's reread those verses from the reading that we had earlier. Just the last couple of verses. Verses 17 to 19. Hebrews chapter 11. This is just wonderful. You get a real insight into sort of under the bonnet of how faith works. This is so, so, so cool. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. I love this. This is this is amazing. This is how faith thinks. This is how faith reasons. Okay? It goes all right. God has promised that a nation will come from Isaac. But now God has commanded Isaac's death. So rather than going right, one of those must be wrong. God's made a mistake in at least one of those places, which is what we naturally do. If we see something not quite lining up, we tend to go, well, then, God, you've got something wrong or the Bible's made a mistake somewhere. But that's not what Abraham does. Abraham starts with the fact that God's word and his promises never fail. God never gets it wrong. Therefore, he says, right, it must be that somehow, even if I kill him, he will live again. See, so Abraham's whole view of reality is that kind of works through the lens of a God whose word never fails. That's how he sees the world. God's word never, ever fails. He may not have seen exactly how those two things tied together, but he knew that they did. Because God said it. It may be a mystery, as we just sang. But God said it, and so it must be true. Not seeing how it could be true doesn't mean that it's not true. So he trusts God's word. He trusts God's promise, even through death and he believed that he would receive Isaac back that's faith that's how faith thinks Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 puts it like this it says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't 
see. We may not always see. We may not always understand. But faith knows that God can be trusted even when he can't be understood. Faith is not certainty of what we see. It's certainty of what we don't see, but what we hear from the mouth of God. I mean, it's it's easy for us to believe God when what he says lines up with what we already think, lines up with our senses, lines up with our experience and our our understanding, right? Which, Which it often does. I mean, so like, for instance, God tells us, doesn't he, do not steal. And most people in this world would agree that, like, that's true. We, we shouldn't steal, right? Stealing is a bad thing to do. So we're happy to believe God on that point. But the test of faith is whether we believe him, even if it doesn't line up with our senses. For instance, God says, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what he says. But here's the problem. I don't always feel loved. So who do we believe? Do do I believe my feelings? Or do I believe what God has said? God says to the Christian, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But there's a problem. I don't see him. What do I believe? My eyes or what God has said? God says Jesus rose from the dead. But hang on a second. People don't just rise from the dead. What do you believe? Your limited reasoning and experience or God's word? See, the question this passage is kind of pushing us to ask is, do you, do we have faith that takes God at his word, no matter what? Even if our senses disagree, even if we can't understand, because that's what true faith is. Let me just take a practical example. Think about how you read the Bible Many people will, will read it and go kind of, well, you know, I really like this bit, but uh, that bit, that's a bit harsh. It's a little bit outdated. You've got to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. It probably doesn't quite mean what it says. Is that what Abraham does with God's word? Of course not. If, if God's word clashes with us and what we think and what we feel, and it will do, <laughs> it will butt up against us sometimes and clash with what we already think. But if that's the case, the problem is not with God's word, like we may assume. Could it be that actually the problem is my own limited understanding, the wrong ways I've been looking at the world, my failure to trust in the God who speaks? So true faith takes God at his word. And we want to be asking, does that describe my faith and yours? Now, secondly, 
let's think about what faith does. Abraham's faith, taking God at his word, expresses itself in obedience. True faith obeys God, doesn't it? James chapter 2, well-known passage says that faith without works or, or kind of obedience to God, faith without works is dead. You cannot say that you have true faith without caring about obeying God or without seeking to grow in doing his will. Faith always produces a growing obedience to God. And Abraham's obedience in this passage is remarkable. Notice verse one, as as soon as God speaks to him, what does Abraham say? Three simple words. Here I am. Before God says another, before Abraham even knows what God is about to say, Abraham says, here I am. I'm ready to do your will, Lord. This is what a servant says to his master. And here's here's the, the sort of crazy bit. After God's given the command, that harrowing, difficult command, Abraham just gets on with it. Verse three. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. He went about and doing what God told him to do. There's, there's no explanation from God, right? Even though, like, we're told that it's a test, but Abraham doesn't know it at the time. God doesn't tell him what's going to happen, and Abraham doesn't ask. He doesn't expect God to explain himself or, or kind of try and bargain with God or, or, or expect something in return. All right, hang, hang on, God. If I if I do this, what's in it for me? Can we think like that sometimes? Lord, I'll do it, but only if you do this. There's none of that. He just obeys. He obeys through what would have clearly been an extremely distressing time. Many people think that verse 3, the fact that he gets up early in the morning is indicating that Abraham had a sleepless night that night. Because of what he knew was coming the next day. But through the distress, Abraham obeys. Why? Verse 12 tells us he obeys because he fears the Lord. He fears God. As in, he he recognizes that the true and living God has spoken. And who is he to answer back to God or to try and hold God to account? Abraham obeys God for no other reason than that he is simply God. That's all the motivation he needs. And and by verse 11, with knife in hand, Abraham is ready to make the sacrifice and God speaks to him again and again, not knowing what God is about to say. Abraham says those same three words that the story started with. Abraham, here I am, Abraham says. See, in his ease, in verse one, And in the most intense distress, Abraham is ready to obey what God says. And nothing is too much to ask. 
That's what faith does. Faith obeys. It obeys even if there's no explanation. It obeys without bargaining. What's in it for me? It obeys simply because God is God. Even through the most severe distress a human could experience, faith says, here I am. Here I am, Lord. So as Abraham's faith is tested here, so is ours. Again, is, is our faith the kind of faith that produces obedience? Is there any desire in your heart to obey God and obey him simply because he's God, who is altogether trustworthy and to whom we owe our obedience? Faith that doesn't care for obedience, faith that doesn't seek to grow in obedience to God even step by step, sometimes baby steps, can't be real faith, not by any definition found in the Bible anyway. Don't get, don't get me wrong, sometimes we take small steps and sometimes we slip, slip a couple of steps back, but, but faith will seek to grow in obedience. Sin does not sit well in the heart that has faith. And the question for us is, do we have that kind of faith? Faith that will obey and obey even if it leads us to intense distress and difficulty. Look, we can be pretty confident, in fact, entirely confident that none of us are going to be asked to make any burnt sacrifices. And especially we're not going to be asked to sacrifice any human beings right god has told us everything that he expects of us in his word so there aren't going to be any nasty surprises but we do know that obeying the commands in the bible can be costly sometimes sin that is deeply ingrained can be hard to let go of sometimes obedience to christ will will put you at odds with with friends and family Sometimes we may have to take out the knife and sever old relationships or sever connections with kind of activities and worlds that we once ran in, but we don't want to anymore because we want to obey and follow our Lord. But it comes at a cost. Jesus says, if anyone will follow me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross. So to put your faith in Christ will mean struggle. It will mean loss. It will mean sacrifice. Are we up for that? Or are there things that would be too much for God to ask of us? I mean, verse 12, God says, now I know that you will not withhold even your own son. And it asks us the question, is there anything too valuable to us that we would withhold it from God? Is there anything that would be too much for God to ask of us? 
the example of Abraham here, of true faith, says no. Nothing is too much. Whatever the cost, here I am. So we've seen that faith takes God at his word. We've seen that faith produces obedience. Now, finally, let's see who faith trusts in. On their way up the mountain in the verse seven, Isaac seems to, to twig that something's going on. He kind of says, uh, Dad, we're making a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering here. Where's the animal? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Where is the lamb? That's the central question to this whole passage, isn't it? How's this going to work out? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? In fact, probably without knowing it, Isaac's actually asking the central question, not just to this passage, but to the whole Old Testament. Right. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? A little further down the line in Exodus, where God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, a lamb dies in the place of the firstborn son of each Israelite household during the Passover so that they could be set free from slavery. A little later on, there was the Day of Atonement where every year a lamb would die for the sins of the people of Israel. Then a little later, we get to Isaiah 53, that famous prophecy of the servant of the Lord, who we discover is the Lord Jesus, who would come and rescue his people, who would be bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And we're told that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The whole Old Testament is building and building, asking the question that Isaac asks, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Who will save us from death and slavery to sin? Who will save us from the judgment of God that is coming because of our rebellion against him? And so in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist lays eyes on the Lord Jesus, his words come like thunder against that Old Testament background because he says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have the answer. God provided the Lamb. More than that, God is the Lamb. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came in the flesh, truly God and truly man, to die for our sins in our place. Just like the Lamb died for Isaac in Genesis 22. This story is like a kind of shadowy outline of when the true Lamb of God arrives, the one who will die in the place of the children of God. Jesus comes and is, is led up the mountain, carrying the wooden cross on his back, submits to the will of his Father, and is truly put to death for sinners like you and me. God has provided the lamb. His name is Jesus Christ. Isaac's question is a bigger one than perhaps he realized. 
And Abraham's answer in verse 8 is bigger still. God himself will provide the lamb. See, Genesis 22 shows us the God who provides. He provided the sacrifice for Abraham and Isaac. But more, he provides the lamb who came and died for us to wash us clean of our sins and to snatch us from the jaws of death so that we can walk with God, following him, now ourselves as living sacrifices and receive eternal life with him forever through Jesus, our lamb. So you see, faith trusts in the God who provides the lamb. Saving faith is not just this kind of vague, generic sort of hopefulness. It's faith in Christ. And that's what makes it effective faith. That's what makes it faith that saves Not the fact that it's strong. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. Jesus himself that saves us. Just to kind of illustrate that point. Imagine you you could have the, the strongest faith. You could believe with all your heart that if you jumped out of an airplane with an umbrella, you'd float to the ground like Mary Poppins. Right? You can believe that with all your heart. But no matter how strong your faith is in that umbrella, you're still going to go splat when you hit the ground. Because your faith was in the wrong thing, even if it was strong. On the other hand, you could be strapped to a skydiving instructor. He's been doing this for decades. He's done this thousands of times. He's got the best, you know, state-of-the-art parachute. There's no doubt that you're going to land safely, but you could be a quivering wreck, right? You could be terrified. You could be doubting your survival, but you're still going to hit the ground safely. Not because of how strong your faith was, but because of who your faith was in, that you were tied to the right man. Effective faith is faith that places its life in the hands of the right man, Jesus Christ, the right God, the God who provides the lamb, who came and took on human flesh to die for sinners. Abraham placed everything in the hands of the God who provides the lamb. He took him at his word and he obeyed no matter what. Will you? Jesus came to be our sacrificial lamb, to lay his life down for our sins, to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. When he calls, which he does even now through his word, when he calls you, let us say, here I am. And put our life, our future, our eternity in his hands 
by faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you because you are the God who provides the lamb. That you are the God who came and stepped into human flesh to be our substitute, to be the one who would take away our sins by dying in our place. Oh Lord, we thank you. We worship you for being the merciful and gracious God that you are. And Lord, help us to have faith. To take you at your word. To obey you, no matter what, wherever you lead. Lord, we want to say, here I am. We want to put our trust in you and in you alone. Lord, sharpen our faith. Dare I pray it, test our faith. Knock off the edges and purify us so that we may trust you and live for you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.